Starfighter. You have been recruited by the Star League to defend the frontier against Zur and the Kodan Armada. Are you ready? Prepare for blast off. Okay, let's go. Welcome to Now Playing's bonus review of The Last Starfighter. Welcome to Rylos, my boy. Hosted by Arnie. I've seen him come and I've seen him go, but you're the best, my boy. Light years ahead of the competition. Marjorie. I hear good things about you. And Justin. Oh, he's quick. He's quick. He's very quick. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. What the shit? Listener discretion is advised. Now, are you ready? All systems, go! Today we're discussing The Last Starfighter, starring Lance Guest, Robert Preston, Dan O'Hurley, Catherine Mary Stewart, Norman Snow, directed by Nick Castle. This is the now-playing co-host who's dying for an ear job, Arnie. <laughs> and this is Justin. This is Marjorie, and I'm giving no one an ear job. <laughs> <laughs> it would fall to you, though. I, I guess it would, yes, being the spouse and all, but I, I don't even know what one is. It sounds messy and perhaps damaging to someone's hearing. <laughs> Well, welcome to this bonus review of the 1984 sci-fi classic? I don't think it's a classic. Underdog? Is it really? Underrated science fiction film. There's an adjective in there, and I'm not sure we've hit it yet. Well, this was a movie that was almost picked for Now Playing's Underrated Movies We Recommend book. It didn't make the final cut but it's still a movie I have long enjoyed and I wanted to get a chance to cover. So we're bringing this bonus show as a way to tide you over this past weekend. Marjorie, I, Justin, several of us were at San Diego Comic-Con International. I didn't get a chance to see the new Star Trek film until just last night, Monday night. And so that review will be out Friday. We didn't want to rush it and try to get it out today. We wanted to make sure it's up to the quality you've come to expect from now playing. And so, yes, a bonus review of The Last Starfighter to tide you over until Friday with Star Trek Beyond. I first saw The Last Starfighter, though. I didn't see it in theaters in 84. I was nine years old when this came out. So I actually saw this in 1998 when The Phantom Menace was looming large in the future. The special editions of Star Wars had come out the year before, and I couldn't bide my time. I needed to see every movie I could see that was Star Wars related. I saw Ben-Hur for the chariot race because I heard that was influencing the pod races in Star Wars, and I was trying to see every Star Wars ripoff I could, and this was a big one. We're about the same age, you know, so we were about the same age when this movie came out. And when we first started talking about if we were going to do this movie or not, I had to think real hard, have I seen The Last Starfighter? And I was pretty sure that I had, but I didn't really have any solid memories of it. So when I sat down and started watching this movie, I'm like, oh yeah, of course I've seen The Last Starfighter. I've seen this a bunch. It used to be on HBO all the time as a kid. We used to rent it. I've seen this movie, but for some reason, it just didn't stick. Like, there's nothing in this movie that made me think, Oh, yeah, The Last Starfighter, that's the one with, I mean, outside of the arcade game, that's the only thing I could really recall. But as I watched this, oh, geez, there's some scenes where I'm like, 
Oh, okay. This is why 10-year-old me, like, blocked this out of my memory. There's some nightmare juice in here. (laughs) (laughs) I have never seen this movie until watching it for this recording. I was vaguely aware of it, where some kid plays a video game and then gets recruited to help fight some bad aliens, but that was the extent of my knowledge of this movie. So apparently I just blocked its existence from my mind. I knew you hadn't seen this because... We used to every week watch South Park, and there was a South Park episode where they're playing a PSP game, and Kenny is taken to heaven to become their, what they call, Keanu Reeves, the person who can command the legions against Satan's forces of hell in a video game-like manner. And it's just the last Starfighter with South Park characters kind of making fun of the Matrix, And I'm sitting here watching this entire episode with you and being like, and that's like in The Last Starfighter, when? (laughs) Yeah, and I had forgotten that. And when we watched this movie, I'm like, oh, this is a South Park episode. (laughs) So way to go, Trey and Matt. They killed Beta, you bastards. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, for me, you mentioned it, Arnie. You know, you were doing this because of Star Wars. I think as a kid, I had like a big case of everything that wasn't Star Wars-itis. So, like, you know, from the ages of 5 to 11 or 12, all these movies that came out, I was like, eh, it's not Star Wars. And it didn't really play with me. I compared everything to Star Wars until I was probably, like, 13 years old. So I can see why this movie really just kind of slipped through my memory hole. Well, after Star Wars in 77 and continuing after Return of the Jedi in 83... I mean, Hollywood was jumping on the bandwagon, and we got some great movies out of it, movies that were kind of waiting for their green light anyway, like Alien. After Star Wars, studios were like, let's push these space films. But there were a lot of movies that were just trite ripoffs as well. And we're going to, I'm sure, be referencing Star Wars a lot as we go through. I think this is one of the most blatant, but... In addition to the script and the green lighting being a sequel to Star Wars, what I learned in my research is this is also a bit of a sequel in of sorts, or at least a follow-up, to Tron. Now, Tron was a Disney movie, and this one is universal, but the effects, the idea of a video game which becomes real, this is the second movie, with Tron being the first, to make extensive use of actual computer-generated images for special effects instead of going with practical models and things like that. Extensive use of CGI. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite ready for primetime CGI. And of course, you've all seen Tron, I take it? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Tron is one of those movies that, you know, this movie has... I mean, beyond Star Wars, this movie has a lot of influences, sometimes to its detriment and sometimes to its credit. But, you know, with Tron, that CGI was a little bit more believable because the rest of the movie, once they were inside the machine, felt of that world. Here, the CGI feels like I'm being taken out of the movie and shown something on a computer screen. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, we'll talk about it as we go through. Well, Arnie, for those people who haven't seen this movie yet, why don't you tell them what it's all about? Lance Guest plays teenage Alex Rogan, a high school student living with his mother and brother in the Starlight Starbright trailer park somewhere in the southwest continental U.S. He is also dating Maggie Gordon, played by Catherine Mary Stewart, 
but his obligations leave them little time together. Alex dreams of getting out of the park and escaping the constant demands for electronic fixes by his neighbors, but his college loan application is denied. Alex vents his frustration by playing the arcade game Starfighter, which was mistakenly delivered to the trailer park. He beats the game's all-time high score, and that night, Alex is visited by the game's creator, Centauri, played by Music Man's Robert Preston. Centauri reveals the game was actually a test to find qualified pilots to fight in a real interstellar war. So Centauri replaces Alex with an android lookalike named Beta, and takes the real Alex to Rylos, the capital of the Rylan Star League. There, Rylan Ambassador Enduran tells all Starfighter candidates of the impending attack by the Kodan Empire. The Kodan were aided by a Rylan traitor named Zur, and they broke through the frontier, which was a shield protecting the Star League. Now the Kodan are planning their final attack to wipe out the Star League, and Zur will be rewarded for his betrayal by ruling Rylos. Alex is frightened by the life-or-death stakes of a real intergalactic war, so he demands to be returned to Earth, and in his absence, the entire Starfighter League is wiped out by the Kodan. But on Earth, Alex is attacked by an alien assassin, and Centauri tells him these bounty hunters will never stop coming for him and his family. So Alex returns to Rylos, where Centauri dies from a wound sustained by the assassin. That leaves only Alex and Starship Navigator Grig, an alien played by... Dan O'Hurley. The two board the experimental starfighter, the Gunstar, and go alone to fight the attacking Kodan. They succeed in their plan against the mothership, taking out the communications array, disorganizing the fighters, which Alex then destroys with a one-time-use weapon called the Death Blossom. Alex also takes out the mothership's navigation systems, causing it to crash into Rylos's moon, killing all aboard, save for Zur, who escaped before the crash. Kind of like Darth Vader, who escaped before the Death Star was destroyed. <laughs> well, we're going to get to some of that stuff. <laughs> Victorious, Alex returns to Earth for Maggie, who he convinces to go back with him to the stars, where he's proclaimed the hero of Rylos, and credits roll. Yeah, I basically could have taken a lot of this plot and swapped Earth for Tatooine, college loan applications for an academy. I, I believe there was quite a few times that I just shouted Star Wars quotes at you from A New Hope. Yeah. But I wanted to go to the Tashi station and pick up some power converters. <laughs> There's definitely that moment in here, yes. Uh, even his mentor dies and then comes back. Yes. <laughs> I feel like I could do a one-woman show of The Last Starfighter, but just do it as Star Wars quotes at the appropriate time. I think that's already happening. There's the one-man Star Wars show. Well, no, but I would do The Last Starfighter. I'd change names as needed. <laughs> okay, so even though they are ripping off Star Wars, they're also ripping off Steven Spielberg. Does this movie not feel like every shot, especially on Earth, is set up through the lens of Steven Spielberg? Well, you have the single mom with the kids, yeah, you know that you say that. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that as well. It, for all the Star Wars we're seeing here, and we're going to keep seeing here, Castle did say on the commentary that they were intentionally trying, when writing, when doing all this, to avoid Spielberg and Lucas tropes. They tried to not do anything done in Star Wars, not do anything done in the Spielberg movies, E.T. and things. And they said that it was just unavoidable because they really knew what they were doing. So is that the equivalent of Tony Soprano going to all the divorce lists so Carmela can't divorce him? 
Poisoning the well. Yeah, that's pretty much what's happened. (laughs) That is the most nicest way of saying, you know, if you're going to copy somebody, copy the best. (laughs) So at least they knew what they were doing. At least they tried to not do it. But I think perhaps Star Wars, E.T., Close Encounters, they were just so omnipresent that I know there are other ways to do this. Maybe they just couldn't think of other ways because they were so awestruck by what had been done. Yeah, it is unavoidable, especially given how big of a hit all those were. I guess you can't help but draw comparisons. Even if they did a completely original story, there would be something somewhere that would lead to these conclusions. So many movies in the 80s. Especially around this period when Spielberg started producing other films that followed his formula like Goonies and Gremlins. I don't know that Spielberg ever set a movie in a trailer park, but if he did, it would be The Last Starfighter. (laughs) Right? Because it's the most romantically lit trailer park I have ever seen. I almost wanted to live there. Yeah, it's a nice trailer (laughs) park, isn't it? And they have an arcade game. Oh, yeah. And a food court. Mm -hmm. I mean, that place looked great. But yet the neighbors actually seem like neighbors you'd have in a food court. The lady (laughs) poking her head out the window wearing like the shower cap, screaming she's going to miss her stories. And (laughs) that was the only requirement to living in that trailer park is you had to be a character of some sort. (laughs) I I like the lady who was in like her rock garden riding an exercise bike outdoors. (laughs) Instead of riding a real bike outdoors. (laughs) And apparently everybody at the trailer park gets up at the exact same time. Yes, that happens when you're in group living. Didn't you have that in college, Justin? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Alex's alarm goes off and all of a sudden everybody's up and got their day going. I love the granny, though, who's gardening while rocking out with her 1984 Sony Walkman. Oh, yeah. She's the hip grandma. (laughs) But even from just, you know, a cinematography standpoint, the shots are all... Very, very much feeling like a like Steven Spielberg sat down and said, okay, this is how you make a shot that looks really, really good and character focused. Because without this, this movie would really, really feel empty and it could have really taken a turn towards B-movie crap town really quick. But I think these Earth scenes save it and make it a little bit endearing. Wait a second, could have taken a turn? <laughs> <laughs> this movie could have been a lot worse. Could have been a lot worse. I do think they play with some good use of shadow, and I think it's because they're legitimately shooting in the desert that they have to play with shadow in order to not have everything glaringly overexposed. But the film stock they used seems kind of muted, or maybe it's the Blu-ray transfer. I have the 25th anniversary edition Blu-ray. Maybe something in the transfer kind of muted the colors on it. The video game stuff is nice and bright, but all these Earth scenes feel like there's almost a desaturation filter. And I, without thinking it's an error on the Blu-ray, I think this is kind of intentional where the director is showing us a drab and colorless earth. Everyone's wearing muted tones, you know? Even their very 80s short shorts and such are just all dull colors. And when you see the video game, you get the bright primary colors. I think we're supposed to see this as... Think of The Wizard of Oz, where the Earth scenes are black and white, and then she goes to Oz in its color. I think that's what they're doing here. No, you're very, very right. Because what they've done is they've made everything in this Earth tone type of color palette, especially like you said in the 80s when neon ruled. Like, it could have been very easy for the costume department to be like, all right, this guy's got a bright yellow shirt on. She's got bright pink shorts. They didn't. Because you're right, they want to stand apart from the CGI that is supposed to be bright and colorful and the eye candy. 
And it even kind of bothered me to the point where it made the last Starfighter's outfit while he was in space feel overly blah and boring to me. Like, that could have used a little bit of splash of color. I mean, really khaki. He's wearing <laughs> a khaki space outfit. Okay, it was the most unstylish race of aliens I've ever seen. <laughs> Talking about the costumes, though, I just had to laugh. Now, I want to point out, this movie was a summer release, going for the big summer blockbuster coming out July 13th, 1984. Three months before James Cameron's Terminator would hit screens, right? But yet, Alex's mother in that pink waitress's dress and her hair looks like Sarah Connor. <laughs> <laughs> to such a degree, I was distracted. <laughs> this movie was so good at ripping stuff off. It was ripping off stuff that hadn't happened yet. Like the DeLorean, that scene was directly out of Back to the Future, which wouldn't be out for another year. How did they do that? <laughs> like a hearse it's like a delorean hearse like a special one they got or something but the first scene where he's standing there and the gold wing doors open and he's standing by a row of mailboxes i'm like wow that's right out of back to the future which hasn't happened yet how how are they doing this <laughs> well we got to give some credit there to nick castle who if that name sounds familiar to our listeners we've covered one of his movies before not one he directed but one he starred in he was Michael Myers in John Carpenter's Halloween. What? Yes, he was the killer in The Mask. <laughs> and he would go on to direct other things, not very good things. The Boy Who Could Fly, Dennis the Menace, Major Pain, Mr. Wrong. All films I've seen that I wish I hadn't. <laughs> yeah. The boy, the boy Who Could Fly has a special place in my heart, and I'm not sure I want to revisit it and, and ruin that place. <laughs> But he did work on the Amazing Stories television series as well, which was executive produced by Spielberg. So I'm thinking this movie did get him some notice for having these things that, yes, Spielberg and Cameron and Zemeckis would do in far more successful movies later. <laughs> but one thing this movie has that is completely it, and I say has become iconic from it, the everlasting bit. The arcade game that is actually a proving grounds for a mysterious other world. And here it's Starfighter and Alex is like great at it. And when he finds out he can't get into college because he can't afford it, he's going to beat the all time high score. Here's where it gets a little too movie-ish for me. It's a video game. And I understand as a little kid fantasy, it's like, yeah, I'm going to be the best at this video game and I'm going to get recognized for it. But where they lost me is everybody in the trailer park comes out and starts cheering them on. Come on. You mean you weren't there for that? Honestly, I lived in Aladdin's Castle, our mall's arcade in the 80s. And you don't think when people were about to beat the high score, people gathered around and cheered them on? It happened. Sure, people that were already in the arcade, not people that were over in the food court. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you were in the arcade, yeah, people gather around and look, and it was a big thing, because, I mean, arcade games were big then. They were huge. We had arcade games all over the skating rink where my parents had the pro shop. And when someone got a high score on Space Invaders, which was usually my mother, other people would come around and watch. But like you say, if you're in the food court at the mall, though, you're doing something better that if you're at a trailer park where your electricity's going out every 20 minutes. So they really had nothing better to do. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll allow it. <laughs> the thing that's a little futuristic for me, but I'll give it this because 
This game, we find out, was developed by a space alien and put on Earth instead of actually developed by people on Earth. True story is Atari actually made this game to tie into the movie, but it would have cost $10,000 per cabinet because of the tech, and nobody wanted to buy that. But I had read, because I looked into this movie to see if like I could get some sort of flash of recognition, that it was loosely tied into that rumored game that may not have ever existed that caused people to have like seizures or nightmares. Polybus or whatever? Yes. Yeah, that's one of those things where nobody will really ever know. It's a conspiracy theory that just is going to kind of penetrate the discussion of movies like this. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, without somebody from Atari coming out at that point and saying, yep, that's what happened. I just don't know that we'll ever get the true answer. What is that story? I don't know this one. It's a deep rabbit hole, and I don't know if we can yeah. really get into it here. But but basically, it was an urban legend where if you played this game, and they, they ended up taking it off the market because so many people were having... Seizures and... Like, they men in black were visiting them and talking to them about their experiences playing the game. Well, this is what I was about to get to, is that can't possibly be true, because... There was no World Wide Web. There was no internet connectivity. If you had an Atari 2600, there was no way for anyone at Atari to know what your score was unless... I remember with the Nintendo 8-bit system and Nintendo Power Magazine, you could get listed in that magazine if you had one of those high scores by taking a photo of your television with a camera and mailing them the photo. I did that with Missile Command. I did it with Punch-Out. <laughs> nice. <laughs> But yeah, here, because it was created by an alien named Centauri, I'll believe he programmed each of these to report back to him when somebody was a record breaker. But come on, it's not like when I went to Aladdin's Castle in Springfield, Illinois and played Pac-Man, the high score was coming from some guy in L.A. <laughs> I mean, really, if you take this movie as reality, he just beat his own high score in the trailer park. Right. Unless that jerk who drove the pickup actually came, beat his high score just to be a dick and drove away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's the only one ever seen playing it. I mean, his little brother takes over his game when he leaves, but it's not like this is a big community game that everybody's trying to break a high score. There's really no stakes in like, okay, well, we are really going to find the best starfighter. It's really just, well, Alex plays this game and if he does good, people are going to come watch. Yeah, and the one thing, if Spielberg had made this film... It would be the little brother who would be the last Starfighter, right? He'd be the Elliot, or... Yeah. Who would really aim young. But here we have the teenage Luke Skywalker. He's about the age Luke was when he was on Tatooine. And yes, Centauri. Now, I don't know if you guys know this actor. I watched a lot of older movies as a kid, but Robert Preston. You know, the name doesn't do anything for me. But he definitely has a gravitas as somebody you should know. I mean, his, his voice and his look is recognizable. And he played it very much like he was in a 1940s movie. It wasn't like, you know, a young guy playing the character. No, he turned this into a Disney movie. Yes. Is what he did. Thank you. Yeah. That's, yeah, exactly. Well, this was his last theatrical release. He did a couple TV things after this, but he had a long history in cinema dating back to the 30s. And where I know him, I tell you there's trouble. Right here in River City. That starts with T and that rhymes with P and that stands for pool. He was the music man in the original stage adaptation and the movie of the same name. Ah. And that's why he got this role. They sought him out because they wanted that same kind of fast talking con man. 
This was something Castle was really trying to play up. What he said he wanted here was a musical without songs. He wanted people to play for that back row. And so getting the music man here and telling him to deliver his lines this way is achieving that effect. <laughs> a musical without song. I want a porno without sex. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, mission accomplished. He is kind of a sing-songy character, and that comes across. And I mean, he is he is a presence on screen. I'll give him that. And we have Centauri. He's looking for the best starfighter to go fight in a war, but he's no patriot. He's a mercenary. You get paid for all of the starfighters you bring up there who are qualified to fight, and he's in it for profit. He's not Obi-Wan who's going to save his old friend's daughter, he's out to make a buck. Yeah, he's not in it for your revolution, princess. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, he is kind of the Han Solo and the Obi-Wan all-in-one. <laughs> but no, I haven't seen a lot of what he's done, I'll admit, but the Music Man is one of my childhood favorites. Even not knowing who he was, I could tell he was there to lend a bit of gravitas, and he was there to give this movie a little oomph, and... He was there to give this movie a little bit of credibility with a name. It's an odd name to bring in, though, because if I think about 80s guys who are going to play the person coming from the stars to give you this mission, I try to think of other roles like this where it happens, and they usually don't play it so slapsticky, right? I mean, this guy has a musicals background, a stage background, and he's playing like he's on a stage. I would think you get somebody a little bit more serious if you want to add the gravitas, but this movie's supposed to be lighthearted and fun. It's going to be as much comedy as we go forward, a slapstick, mistaken identity comedy as anything else, and so I guess they don't want it to get too serious but yeah he has in the backseat of his delorean beta who just hides in shadows and shakes hands with alex and gives him an electric shock and he's going to transform to alex in some suffocating plastic transformation is that what was giving you the nightmare juice because that is freaky yes <laughs> that is the part i had completely blocked out of my mind and the minute i saw it i was like oh yes i have seen this movie <laughs> that was like some kind of suffocation nightmare out of Saw. Oh, full eyes, no eyelids, a translucent skin where you can see bones and mechanics underneath it, and it's pulsating, and it's sticking to the blankets a little bit. Yikes. Yeah, it was like an android melted. It gave me that vibe from the end of Alien, where Ash is decommissioned, killed, destroyed, and like that goo came out that was like milky white, and it's like that had glommed together and made something disgusting in that bed. This is where the 80s couldn't really predict science and fiction going forward. I mean, beyond not being able to predict flat screens and thinner electronics, they couldn't predict like morphing something quickly. You know, like the idea is that this beta guy got all the information he needed from Alex just by touching him. And now he's going to go take what a day and a half to become Alex. Nowadays it'd be like he touches him and zoop instantly an Alex copy, <laughs> but he has to go metamorphosize for a while. And why did he even go to his bedroom? Just go hide off in the woods for a while until you're done. That whole scene made me think of Ferris Bueller. So there's another part where it is predicted the future. <laughs> 
Yeah, with the mannequin he, under the sheet. Yeah, and, and the snoring and the moving. Oh, yeah. I can totally see that. Only in Ferris Bueller, it was revealed to be a mannequin, and here it's revealed to be a nightmare-inducing, <laughs> pulsating white blob of goo. <laughs> uh, this is the first time, but it's not the only time that Beta is going to cause nightmares for me. We'll get to that later, I'm sure. Yeah, but we're now about 20 minutes into the film. It's going to move pretty quick, and... Yeah, Alex gets to go to Ryloth, and we learn Centauri's not all he seems either, because he, like, pulls off his face and pulls out his eyeballs, and you see some kind of weird, it looks like, you know, your classic alien from the Roswell, New Mexico theories, only he has these glowing red eyes. Yeah, and even that one feels like it's a little bit from Star Wars. There's a... Duros yes. aliens that it looks like. I was trying to avoid getting too Star Wars specific, but yeah. You have to because throughout this entire movie, you're going to be like, oh, that's a rip off of Star Wars scene. That was a Star Wars scene. I mean, when he arrives, when he goes to the briefing for the pilots, it is so when the rebels are attacking the Death Star. Down to a guy with a giant white mustache. Yeah. It, <laughs> and in fact, one guy that even says... This is impossible. And then to which I said, nah, it's not impossible. I used to bullseye womp rats with my T-16 back home. <laughs> I know. I wrote my notes just waiting for someone to ask, what are starfighters going to do against that? <laughs> <laughs> now, just before that scene, though, we get our first look at a spaceship. That DeLorean that was actually a practical DeLorean they built. When it goes into space, we are now in the world of the computer. And... They just kind of introduce it to us slowly. I don't think it was too blatant at first that what we were seeing was a computer. When they arrive at Rylos, it becomes really obvious. But initially, that DeLorean, it's kept in the shadow. I think it, it didn't jar me until they got to Rylos that I was looking at an animated movie. No, you're right. They did transition pretty well. They went through some planets that were nice and round, if not very well defined. But yeah, once they got to the planet, you're like, oh, bitmapping. <laughs> <laughs> Although I am kind of impressed for those of you out there who are computer geeks. All of these special effects are rendered in 1984 at a resolution your monitor can handle. These are 3000 by 5000 pixel. Ooh. It holds up even on my home theater on Blu-ray. There's no aliasing or anything else. These are high quality graphics and all right here's what i'm gonna say about the mixture of cgi and real action it's not photorealistic and if you go to be completely submerged in a world which i usually do you're gonna want to see something like alien or star trek the motion picture or star wars where they have miniatures that they use the dykstra cam to do motion control shots with but not every movie needs to be that integrated. I mean, when they made Who Framed Roger Rabbit, they didn't try to make human realistic Bugs Bunny and human realistic Daffy Duck, because that would be creepy as hell. Yes, it's already creepy. They waited for Space Jam to do that. Yeah. Oh. Oh. <laughs> so here, I take it as just this mixture of animation and reality that it works for me, and we'll talk about it as we go through. But they're able to do things because it's computer controlled in this movie 
that they could have never done with a miniature. You're right. And if this was a Lucas movie, you know there would have been two or three special editions by now where all of this stuff would have been whitewashed away and it would look awesome and real. And I think I would be in the camp that says, no, leave the original alone. You know, there's a nostalgic, almost historic aspect to the beginning of CGI graphics as a form of entertainment. Yeah, if I really, when I thought about computer graphics in film, I had always incorrectly assumed the abyss with stage zero, with James Cameron and the water tentacle, which would then lead into Terminator 2 and all of that. But no, it started much earlier. We've covered so much of it with like Westworld, Future World, and... Star Wars with the briefing scene, and here we're just seeing another stage in the evolution. So we're looking at, you know, the equivalent of Neanderthal CGI versus <laughs> Homo sapien CGI, but it's got a charm to it that I'm just going to say, and maybe it's because it's nostalgic and 80s and things, it looks better than any video game. I mean, they could have gone total 8-bit and just been like, we're going to make this look like Atari, but <laughs> they... <laughs> They did something else with it that I'm able to enjoy. True. And, you know, even though they did take a few too many opportunities to try to show off their world, it never became, well, I'm not going to say never. There's a few points where I'm just like, okay, come on, guys. You maybe should have, you know, not spent so much time on that shot as we get it. The CGI, yes, it was Neanderthal, I guess, Arnie, to use your term. But I kept getting taken out of it and distracted by their television show quality sets that they were using. Because it reminded me so much of the sets they used for V and the way they filmed the movie. It had that film quality like a TV show. Admittedly, what I kept going back to, because this movie, it's not overly serious. You know, it's not trying to be V. I just honestly expected at any moment for a little robot to walk out and go, tiki tiki. (laughs) (laughs) You mean, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this was very much Buck Rogers. (laughs) That said... Think about Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. and Don't you diss that show. I'm just saying okay. the control booths, remember where, like in the Federation where all the people are communicating with Kirk before he goes back in time. Yes. And not the biggest budget films of the 80s, but your average sci-fi film, I think this is on par. Yeah. And Star Trek IV came out several years later, and I think it just has the same kind of you know, Christmas tree computers and things like that. I guess it feels like the costumes and then the sets just seemed not amateurish, but a certain style that you get with the TV show. I mean, when he was targeting in his computer, like things shake a little, like you would expect, like if you're shaking a set. To the outfits, you guys have kind of dissed the bland color scheme. But to me, this was taking me right back to Star Trek The Motion Picture, which admittedly had the most dull of all the Federation outfits in any incarnation, but they oh, all wore yeah. the same kind of grayish blue. and Their outfits just seemed really thick like mm-hmm. and hot. Like There was a lot of things going on in that fabric. And even all the aliens, they've got kind of the quilted collars and everything, and you could tell they're trying to make this the cantina scene when he arrives on Rylos and he's joining all the other starfighters. They pulled every mask out they could and sit there and he steps on the octopus alien's tentacle and things. But this movie was never intended to be epic. It was intentionally, the CGI also helped keep the budget down at 15 million. And yeah, the seams are showing a little bit because of that price and scenes where we don't spend a whole lot of time either. (laughs) I mean, yeah, the aliens, 
I'm not going to ding them for the look. I mean, I think they did a pretty good job. They were creative in coming up with different looking aliens, and they looked okay. They looked a little latexy, but not overly so. And I was reminded of future Star Wars. Maybe I just had Star Wars on the brain, but the one he sits next to reminds me of the little dude's from Attack of the Clones, who on Utapau refuels Obi-Wan's ship. <laughs> oh, yeah. With those wide-set eyes. Mm-hmm. And the one was kind of googly. <laughs> Didn't want to move with the other one. And continuing movies that they predated, <laughs> the guy who Alex meets, who's going to become his partner, Grig. That was Enemy Mine. That's the first thing yes. I said. I was like, Enemy Mine? Ernie goes, that came out later. I'm like, damn it! <laughs> See, that's one of the movies that when I first thought about Last Starfighter, had I seen it or not, I got those two movies conflated in my head because it's that same looking alien. It's yeah. almost exactly the same. Yeah, the lizardy kind of thing. I also thought V because it was just brown. A humanoid lizard. Yeah. Now, the actor who plays this is another actor who we've covered a lot on the show who also has a Halloween tie. I mentioned Dan O'Hurley, another actor with a very long career who. <laughs> is probably best known to our audiences as the old man from RoboCop who ran OCP. <laughs> okay. And he's also the old man Cochrane who was behind the entire Irish witch cult in Halloween 3, the season oh. of the witch. <laughs> Just two years before this, he was running an evil mask cult out of Stonehenge. <sighs> is he responsible for the song? No, 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 no. no. It would be great if he was, wouldn't it? (laughs) But it's weird because, I mean, three years after this movie, he's playing the old man, right? And at the time of filming this movie, he's 64 years old. You would never know it under the big latex mask. But that's, again, odd casting to hire an old man to play Alex's pilot. Yeah, I mean, that could have been anybody, but... I guess they needed the personality to shine beneath that latex and whether or not that worked for you. (laughs) They did need someone to act. He was very Broadway. And I kind of wonder if him and Robert Preston kind of took these roles as, hey, I'm going to be in something like Star Wars and the kids are going to love it and it's going to rejuvenate things and my grandkids are going to be excited. My thought on Dan O'Hurley, though, with Greg... Nothing in his character is anything but brave. In fact, he's brave to the point of foolhardy. But when he laughs, he goes this... (laughs) Which, cowardly lion, right? Yes. (laughs) Oh, yes. Cowardly lion with emphysema. (laughs) And I could never tell. I was always distracted. Every time he's on screen, I could never tell if it was a choice they made in the costume department or if the latex was just irritating his eyes. But he always had, like, really irritated red eyes going on. <laughs> H-A-F, Justin. <laughs> Very possible. I was also distracted by the fact that the costume looked like he had a turtle shell wrapped around his head. <laughs> well, yes. It, it was... Very clearly a rubber costume. I don't think that it really advanced in costuming until maybe in the 90s. But it looked rubbery and costumey like Return of the Jedi aliens. But this is also where we're introduced to Zur. He shows up as a giant floating head in the single most comical special effect of the movie. And this guy is played by Norman Snow. 
and he's not really known for a whole lot, but he's done a lot of television, and he, you know, you mentioned that you thought Dan O'Hurley was going Broadway. This guy screams like either kids movie or something. I don't know what movie he thought he was making, and admittedly, he's on his own for almost all of it. He never comes face to face with anyone except the Kodan, right? He just sits on the Kodan with this weird scepter that has a switchblade in it, because nothing's more 80s than a switchblade, even if it's in a <laughs> scepter. And it just, he felt like he'd be the bad guy in something far less serious than a genocide plot. Yeah, and I almost wonder if they created his look first, and then like decided that was the look of all of the people on... Rogaine or Ryloth or whatever it is. <laughs> Rogaine. Yeah, they're all bald, Justin. Because they made him look evil with the big butthead forehead, and then everybody else on that planet looks like that. And I was just like, that is a weird choice. Because as a kid, I'm looking at these people thinking, I just could not care less if their planet gets blown up. Yeah, they weren't very likable. A lot of times you can get behind the alien because you know where they're coming from. This guy just seemed like the brat in school. Yeah, he wasn't given a whole lot of motivation. He's told that he'll be able to rule right. I mean, the equation that came up to my head was Superman 2. He's Lex Luthor, who gets Australia for helping the Kryptonians defeat Superman. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, you put more thought into it than the writers did, apparently, because I had no idea. He just, he was a bad guy because he didn't like his dad, I guess. I think that big forehead, uh, you know, this almost Ferengi forehead is <laughs> evil enough. <laughs> Uh, yes, but the big Wizard of Oz floating head scene. Wow. That was so, so... Bad? Terrible? Yes. <laughs> I found it jarring because it came right after the briefing and he's showing this like torture of an alien going on and it came out of nowhere and that you could have just a giant floating head out of nowhere. Now, again, what I think they were trying for with the giant floating head... Empire Strikes Back, the Emperor, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yep. See, I didn't even get that. I was just laughing at his forehead. Well, they should (laughs) have... Maybe they were trying to show off by saying that we have him from a whole bunch of different angles, but just the fact that his head kept moving around, (laughs) it just really came off like he didn't know where to look. Yeah, or (laughs) it's like the walk like an Egyptian thing, where his eyes are going all over, like, I see you, I see you, I see you. He was told to make eye contact. (laughs) With everybody in the room. At least once. (laughs) And he's imagining everyone in their underwear, too. He just has such a smile where he comes off. Like, I'd be expecting him to play an evil teacher in Boy Meets World with the way he acts. (laughs) Random. But looking at his IMDb, he's been on every soap opera, so that's probably not too far of a shot. Now, I do have a little bit of a problem, because we're 40 minutes into this film now. We finally get introduced to our villain. I'm not saying we spent too long on Earth or any specific thing, But the movie's starting to drag a little bit, and this is when the action should kick in. He's on Ryloth, we've been introduced to all of our characters, it's time now to get things moving, only no, we're gonna say take me home and draw things out a little longer than they need to be. Yeah, and it also destroys not only the pace of the movie, it destroys the distance from which it feels like he is being taken away into this other world. It seems like it's just like a quick hop, skip, and a jump back to Earth, no problem. 
Because as we'll talk about later on, they're making it sound like if he goes off to do this next mission, he doesn't know when he'll be back. It's just so far away. I, I can't come back and visit, even though they've been back and forth seemingly this entire movie between Earth and Rilo. So it just seems like a bad choice to be like, yeah, no, we're not starting the movie yet. Go back home and have a crisis of conscience. Yeah, this, it seemed like it took forever to get there. And by this point, I was kind of like, oh, we need to get this show on the road, people. Not enough was happening. Yeah, there's a lot of setup. And again, to equate it to Star Wars, by this point, we'd already had the opening attack, which was full of action. We'd had the droids attacked by Jawas, which was full of action. Here, the most action we've had in this movie was him playing an arcade game. We're supposed to be transported to this magical world of Ryloth, but it's just not quite getting there. I think what was missing is some sort of, well, more action, but some sort of attachment to Rilo with Alex being obsessed with the Mm. game, Mm -hmm. or maybe, you know, like his dream is to go to college and be a video game designer or a story writer or something because he loves this game so much and it's all he talks about. Now, you would have gotten that if, like Justin said, if it was like a little kid, like a Spielberg movie. Uh, The one thing they could have done to that effect, but it would have changed his going back home. He thinks home is safe. In fact, there's a big deal when the leader of Rilo, Ambassador Enduran, says it's illegal, I don't know by whose laws, for Alex to fight with the Star League because Earth is not part of the Star League. If Earth was under the protection of the Star League or something, we'd be able to say, hey, we're just not technologically advanced enough to have been contacted, but we're a primitive people who they're protecting, and we're actually in their frontier, and if the Star League falls, the Kodan are going to take over Earth and everything. They do try to make it personal for Alex in that now that they know he's a starfighter who has escaped the ship, they tracked the DeLorean leaving Rilo, they're going to come and try to kill him and kill his family. They personalize it that way, but I think it would invest the audience more, perhaps, and invest Alex more if Earth itself were in the crosshairs. Of course, Star Wars was a galaxy far, far away that never had Earth there, but we learned to care about Tatooine and care about Leia and care about their rebellion, which was at risk. Well, you cared about Luke wanting to get out of Tatooine and go do something more exciting with his life. I cared about Alex not getting a student loan. Uh, But no, you're right. There's very little stakes here for Earth and for Rilo, like Marjorie said. Who cares? I mean, they haven't given us a reason to care whether or not this planet of Baldi's gets destroyed or taken over or whatever the stakes are. So, yeah, it's no wonder Alex comes back. And then they needed a something to keep us going here. Yeah, really, though, he made the right choice in fleeing, right? Because had he stayed, he'd be dead. There is nothing he could have done. Now, let's take him as the chosen one. He is the single best starfighter in all the galaxy because that dude has a lot of quarters. (laughs) He might not have needed a student loan if he hadn't put them all into the game. (laughs) But they don't have necessarily a starfight so much as an ambush that happens. The Kodan take out all of the Star League fighters on their base. Yeah, an unprovoked attack, you know? I mean, this is almost an act of terrorism. <laughs> well, war. I mean, they it's not like they didn't see it coming. Sure. I mean, they knew that something was happening, but yeah, it was almost genocide, but 
you know, at the time it was happening, I thought, oh, geez, that whole place is gone. And they hadn't shown us anything other on the planet of Rilo other than what turns out just to be their military outpost. I didn't realize that there was a whole population and a planet going on. That's because it was poor storytelling, Justin. Yes. <laughs> and so they didn't even destroy the entire base. They just managed to destroy the part where the pilots were, apparently. That's all you need to worry about. Well, if you take out the army, I mean, Zerd doesn't want to rule a desolate planet. He wants to rule some people and have some slaves. True, but I guess what I'm saying is is that they destroyed the starfighters and the pilots, thinking that would take care of, you know, any counterattacks or defense. But yet, there's still one starfighter and one gun star left. This introduces a plot twist that I feel is the most unexplained of the entire movie. On the Rilo Starbase, there's a guy with some C4 that he's going to plant in Mission Control. Who is this dude? Where did he come from? And why is he on Zer's side? Right. He gave a dirty look to Alex when he first showed up, and that's the only context we have to this character. But how can he tell us a dirty look? I mean... <laughs> right, that guy just has rusty bitching face. <laughs> <laughs> then the attack they use, the only time I feel the graphics hurt this movie. They're hurling asteroids at it. I, I loved playing asteroids as a kid. Is that what they were going for? <laughs> well, asteroids maybe from their perspective, but the way they were tracking them, it was Missile Command. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the things coming in with the lines coming, I was like, oh, somebody just needs to get out there and shoot. the. Oh, oh you missed. Your, your city is crushed. <laughs> That's right. I hadn't even thought about that. It, it's just when the asteroids hit, that explosion, obviously you couldn't do fire. It took a long time for CGI fire to be done well. So they had like a practical explosion that they put on a computer graphic. And it's like, that's the one time it just didn't work for me. But it's so quick. Yeah, any explosion. But now we're missing the middle part of the rendering of the base. It still has... Something on the side and something on the other side, but that middle part is now gone. And honestly, I kind of wish the middle part of the movie was gone, because now we're <laughs> going to go back to Earth. <laughs> Alex meets Beta. Awkward. Comedy relief. Was it really, though, comedy, Justin? I know comedy's subjective, but... <laughs> it was lighthearted. Sure. This is where the movie really doesn't know who it's trying to appeal to. Is it <laughs> trying to appeal to little kids? Because they've already scared the hell out of me. As a little kid. <laughs> and now they're like, but look, it's funny and he's cute. And, um, oh, wait, he's going to take his head off. <laughs> well, he needed an ear job. What do you do when you need an ear job? <laughs> he goes down to the corner and pays 25 bucks. Exactly. Well, in $1984. Okay, it'd be five. <laughs> Some good split screen. Admittedly, the split screen is decent. Now, what the special features said was that actually beta did so well in test screenings that they went back and filmed more of him. So all that stuff on the beach and everything else, and even some of that stuff here, was filmed much later, after the actor had gotten really sick and lost a bunch of weight and had to wear a wig. So if Beta doesn't quite look right, it's because it was done so much later to bring in more of the comedy that people were loving initially. Okay, that explains a lot, because I was like, what the hell? He looked okay before in certain scenes, and then other scenes he looks different. And I thought it was me thinking it was the wrong character. No, there's a shot when they're riding in the back of the pickup where 
he's not really paying attention and he starts laughing maniacally and weird. Mm-hmm. Like, if you just paused right there, that was scary looking. You're right. He was overly pale. You could tell he had a wig on. He was emaciated. I'm just like, wow, this is really dedication to making this android not feel quite right. But nope, turns out it was just pickups and the actor not look like that for a while, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> But here, Beta is going to convince him, even before he knows about what happened on Rilo, even before this weird fish face bounty hunter is going to show up. And I got questions about him. But <laughs> before all of that, he's a little freaked out by Beta. I do love how <laughs> the little brother is there. <laughs> and the brother's porn obsessed. Honestly, he's little Arnie. <laughs> what do you mean, little Arnie? <laughs> I mean, I may have had a stack of Playboys when I was 11 or 12 as well. Oh! And the fact that he sees Beta with Alex and Alex is just like, go back to bed or I'm going to tell mom about your Playboys. (laughs) And he's a connoisseur. He's like, where's Miss June? (laughs) I'm just thinking about what message that sends to 10-year-old kids. Like, hey, yeah, here's some nudie mags. Yeah, but I think it was okay then because, I mean, Playboy was a huge entity. And we didn't have the internet. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) if you go back and look at a Playboy from 1983, you're going to be like, this was porn? Yeah, it was pretty tame by today's standards, for sure. But I have a question about what changes Alex's mind. Some guy is dropped off out of a pickup truck at the trailer park. He has a space gun. Is he a bounty hunter yet? Because he walks past the Starfighter video game. It starts flashing. He kind of gives it a what the fuh look. And then he transforms into fish face, what they're actually called are the Zandozan. And why does he have a space gun if he's not a Zandozan? And if he is already a Zandozan in human disguise, why does he get, like, overtaken by Starfighter? You tell me. That whole thing was confusing. Okay, so it wasn't just me either, because I thought I missed, like, a chunk of the movie. Like, maybe... I mean, to make excuses for the movie, maybe the arcade game has some sort of tracking device for spies and can decloak them, but that's not mentioned anywhere. Just, that was so weird. Like, here's an ugly guy. And plus, how does that work? There's no way that that dude's fish head fit in a mask that would make him look human. I didn't take it as a mask. I took it as almost, I don't know, a projection or something, or maybe it deformed him into a Zandozan and... Not to be racist, but all Xandozan look alike to me. (laughs) I'm sorry. I find that their names for these people are just ridiculous. Xandozan? I couldn't follow any of the names, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, why not something much better like Rodian and (laughs) Wookiee? But maybe I'm just familiar with those. Exactly. If we were here doing a retrospective up to the last Starfighter 9... We'd be like, yeah, of course it's a Zandozan. I don't know. There's something about the ZA and XA sounds that is just, you know, lazy science fiction writing. But the Zandozan is really our first moment of suspense there. I didn't feel a whole lot for Rilo when it was being attacked, but a Zandozan with a space gun on Earth and shoots Centauri who'd shown up because... He was called to get Beta. Yeah, and and then a little bit more of, you know, taking its cues from Star Wars, we get red lasers and blue lasers. <laughs> and an arm cut off by Obi-Wan. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm not quite sure what these weapons do, and I'm not sure the people who made the movie do either, because the one guy gets shot, and it's a wound, 
The other guy gets shot and his arm flies off, but then he's like, oh no, shoot him again, and now he blows up and catches on fire. Well, he admittedly, he's shot like eight more times, and then he blows up. <laughs> it just seems like a weird weapon. Like, I don't care if you're shooting just a regular gun or whatever, you're, you can shoot 12 rounds into somebody and they're not going to blow up, or neither is their arm going to fly off. I could give this movie a give me and say it's like one of those guns that has a rifle barrel and a grenade launcher. All right, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Of all the problems with this movie, and there are some, the fact that the gun works differently when shot eight times and shot once is of the least of my troubles. It just goes along with the mystery of who the hell is this Zandozan, whoever the hell this Zanduzan is. Centauri is wounded but takes Alex back to space, and I do love the little detail that, like, his DeLorean is like a limo where he can roll up the glass. Yeah. So, like, if Alex, maybe when Alex is back there with Maggie sometime later, <laughs> they can have a little privacy while Centauri <laughs> drives. But Maggie, we haven't mentioned her. Catherine Mary Stewart, who I had to look her up, but... I know her. She is the main girl from Weekend at Bernie's, Gwen. Thank you. Thank you. I had the exact same experience. I'm like, why do I know this woman? Well, she had blonde hair in that movie, and she was the only girl, Arnie, pretty much. Not just the main girl. She was the love interest in that movie. Right, but there were a lot of girls, though, in bikinis. There was only one love interest, though. Yeah. And I didn't exactly get... It's, it was a little weird to try to judge the vibe between her and Alex at the beginning, because he is sitting with her, talking about their future, his arms around her, but she does get in that pickup truck with the snotty guy who I thought was, you know, perhaps the current boyfriend. I mean, that's just the 80s trope, right? The blonde hunky dude is the current boyfriend, and the brunette geeky dude gets her at the end. I didn't necessarily get... That there was, you know, a sexual rivalry going on there, but there was some sort of animus going on, which was never really sussed out between those two. I think that had this movie been better written, we would have felt some sort of connection between those two. I thought they were just friends. It didn't seem like they were super together. Like, it was just kind of like a convenience thing. You know, I didn't feel like there was anything there. Maybe there's only two people, like, of that age and that... Trailer park. That's exactly it. They are the only two people of that age on the trailer park. <laughs> and they're going to get out together. Yes. Hey, that's a Bon Jovi song, I think. Isn't this living on a prayer? <laughs> I wonder if uh, the reason I didn't get quite such a strong sexual relationship in the early scenes is because, as I mentioned, there's now going to be a lot of 80s rom-com, like, sex comedy going on as Beta, as Alex, goes on a camping trip with Mags. And I wonder if they, like, advanced the relationship, whereas originally Alex would have come back for Maggie at the end, and that would have been, you know, a profession of love, and he goes with her. But now, to explain away all of this weird insertion, tonally awkward comedy of him professing his love and sticking tongues in her ear and things if they had to try to make them closer. Or maybe the actors just weren't very good at portraying the love they felt for each other in the early scenes. I can't tell. I mean, I guess they did an okay job. Like, I never got the sense that, you know, they were anything but boyfriend and girlfriend. And then they had the scenes where she was mad because she didn't know that it was Beta and not Alex, who was denying her advances because she was trying to stick her tongue in his ear, and it freaked him out. 
Yeah, we're told that after the fact. When Alex comes back and talks to Beta, Beta, like, describes how things went bad with Maggie, but he'll fix it and make it right because she stuck her tongue in his ear. I guess that's an ear job. <laughs> that's the ear job that he's looking for. <laughs> 25 bucks, please. <laughs> we don't get to see that. <laughs> we don't get to see her sticking her tongue in the android's ear. <laughs> right. <laughs> we don't We don't have to see that as more of a... <laughs> <laughs> but we wondered what an ear job was. True. But we're going to get them on the beach. She's still mad at him. And yet they're sleeping in the same sleeping bag. Yeah, that scene, I wasn't sure what was going on, man. There was just a lot of, you know, rumpled bodies and movement under a blanket. And I was like, what is going on here? Like, this got (laughs) super adult all of a sudden. (laughs) 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 But I will admit to genuine laughter, the comedy worked for me when he's using his android hearing to eavesdrop on other people. And he's like, you're my Venus, and saying these romantic things. And Maggie completely warms to him. And then you just hear him over here, the other girls meant nothing to me. (laughs) This is what the whole beta experience should have been like, instead of everything else that we got. There should have been more of this, where he's trying to fit in, to give us something back on Earth to make us at least enjoy the time we had to spend there. Yeah, it's it's very small wonderish type humor. Yes. <laughs> very nice pull. Yeah, you're right. And I think, you know, that, like Arnie said, this was done in reshoots after it tested better with the more beta stuff. So, hey, kudos to that test audience for making this film a little bit better. But damn them for making this movie a little bit longer. I mean, admittedly, what I would cut would have been some of the stuff where he was coming back to Earth, and, you know, it really needed to be trimmed in the 40 minutes. I'm enjoying this stuff, but, again, the pacing of this movie is bad, and this is all happening, you know, there's been a little bit of a space chase, but it's happening before Alex has really gotten into the thick of the action, too. So it's like, I would have rather had this instead of Alex coming back to Earth, Instead of in addition to Alex coming back to Earth. And maybe Alex could just be told. I mean, they have floating heads and screens of people getting tortured. Maybe Beta could have been the one attacked by the Zandozan and in protecting his mother. And maybe, you know, Omega has to take Beta's place because Beta gets killed. I'm spitballing here. But that tells Alex you have to stay and cut 15 minutes out of this movie. Admittedly, you wouldn't get Obi-Wan's little death that's coming up, but... (laughs) No, you're right. A lot of this could have been done via monitors that they could see from elsewhere. But that would present a few problems for this movie. It It would have had Alex on the base when the rest of them were killed, thus not making him the last starfighter. And it gave them a reason to have Obi-Wan killed. You're right. I mean, yes, this movie's called The Last Starfighter. My memory mistakenly made me think that was the name of the video game. But no, it's just that when he does get back to Rilo, he's the last one there. And we do see this moving death scene with Centauri where, like, (laughs) (laughs) Centauri shows up and... Greg also survives. You can't tell me Alex couldn't have survived. Greg's there. <laughs> yeah. He could have just hit out with Greg. Yeah, they could have just been in the break room while the, all the other pilots are getting ready to go fight. <laughs> he could have chased down the mysterious C4 planting assassin and been heroic while everyone else died. <laughs> it would have been more impactful if Griggs would have been the only survivor. 
you know, but there was everybody else in that base was still around except for the pilots for some reason. And it's just a weird, like, death speech. Like, we have your money. There's piles and piles of money. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I don't even know if the movie writers at this point knew if he was dead for sure or not, or if they were going to bring him back later on, because that was just painful and unfunny. And Alex was way too okay with it at first. Like, ah, well, this guy's dying. Tell him, tell him he's got money. It's piles of money. It's good. Make him happy. Much like the viewer, he doesn't have an attachment to anything in this movie either. <laughs> Very good. So then we move on to, I would say, maybe the longest training video I have ever seen. Because now, <laughs> now we get to get into the Gunstar. And I swear to God, I could fly this thing because we just got uh, the rundown on what every single button and every lever <laughs> in this thing does. Well, this was actually intentional. This was them looking at the game and level one of the game was shooting targets. And if you remember X-Wing, the game for the PC, the first levels of that were running training missions, just learning how to pilot and shoot still targets. And so what they were doing here was having Alex go through level one, which is shoot the targets, and then later go through level two, which is fight ships. And I can see that, you know, watching this with 30 years of gaming knowledge and evolutions. Looking back that far, it's kind of hard to remember. Like, sure, we, we remember we were playing Atari 2600 or whatever at the time. But, you know, maybe 11-year-old me would look at that and be like, oh, yeah, wouldn't it be cool if a game could actually be like that? So maybe that's a little bit of what they were doing. They were giving us video game fantasies and movie fantasies. <laughs> well... The benefit is it's using the controls of the arcade game. It's not actually using any foot pedals or anything else. He just has the same joysticks he had, plus, you know, the button that you don't push. Don't cross the streams, you know, whatever you want. That always the thing you shouldn't ever do that you're going to have to do to save the day at the end. <laughs> but I'm not wrong in thinking that was way too long of a scene, right? No, no, you're exactly right. What confused me what I didn't remember because I've seen this movie a couple of times since the 90s but I wasn't intimately familiar with every plot beat when you say starfighter I'm thinking star wars I'm thinking pilot the last pilot he's actually just a gunner he's not going to do any evasive maneuvers he's not going to do right. any of that that's all grig yeah he's the gunner Ugh. and admittedly he's an exceptionally talented gunner but is he all he does is spin in circles well, I, is he? I'd say, you know what this was hearkening back to? The When Luke was in the turret on the Millennium Falcon? Oh, yeah. That, too. <laughs> I was thinking World War II, where you had, like, the bomber planes that had the gun turrets. And so you had your pilots, you had your bombardiers, and then you had your guys in the little canopies with guns. And you're giving them way too much credit here. Because clearly, with everything else in this movie, they are ripping off Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well. Great kid, don't get cocky. I'm just saying there's, I wouldn't want to disrespect the heroes of World War II and after by belittling the role of the gunner. No, you're right. But generally speaking, as an audience of a movie, we think of the hero as the guy who's doing all of it. You know, Luke flies his X-Wing. He fires mm -hmm. his own weapons. Yeah, and you say you could do this. I would tend to think you don't need, like... 
years of flight school to be the gunner. Oh, no. I don't think you need flight school. I think apparently you just need to play video games. <laughs> I'm a gunner now. Yes, you are. You are quite possibly the best starfighter, Arnie. <laughs> just make sure you keep looking forward. Otherwise, your heads up display will not display. <laughs> Which is a weird feature, right? So if you get knocked side to side and they do a lot of that Star Trekian, we're flying over here, we're running over there, kind of back and forth, you you get knocked around. You can't see anything. (laughs) (sighs) And yeah, he shoots non-moving targets and things. Are they going for Obi-Wan with the training remote on the Falcon? Maybe, but again, it's not exactly exciting. And it seems to me like you know, this movie has over 20 minutes of CGI, and they're using it here. They're showing off their programming. And like I said, it's not photorealistic, but you could not do some of the camera movements they do here, where you go like 180 degrees around a ship, and you can go up, down, get that 360-degree kind of VR motion. You couldn't do that with a model. And so it's pretty-looking, I wish there were stakes. I wish it wasn't, everybody's dead, now let's shoot these floating targets. Yeah, let's go battle, but first, let's have a little live demonstration. But then they get to a scene that I think George Lucas ripped off. They're gonna be chased by an enemy starfighter through, like, the caverns of an asteroid, just like Obi-Wan and Jango fed in Attack of the Clones. (laughs) I think Lucas is a secret fan of this (laughs) ripoff. Possibly. Maybe if he ever opens that sci-fi museum in Chicago, we'll see a last Starfighter display. (laughs) Maybe he wrote this under a different name. Uh, It's better written than that. (laughs) Ouch. Yeah, for all the wackiness and overly CGI things that are about to happen as they fly into these caves, the one thing that really sticks out at me and bothered me the most, it wasn't the caves looking under-rendered and kind of smooth and crappy. It was... After all the firing was done, the ship just stops so they don't have to render movement anymore for a while. And they're just kind of sitting there. And it was just really, it really pulled me out. I was like, whoa, what's going on? Did the background freeze up? Oh, no, they're hovering. Okay, I got you. In space, no one can see you float. I guess. (laughs) But then they come up with a plan and Alex is still not on board with it. (laughs) Well, it's kind of a suicide mission. And this is where... I finally love Greg. Greg has been kind of a bland character for me so far, you know? I didn't know whether to blame the mask or the not-quite-a-master-thespian <laughs> under the mask, but he hadn't really done a whole lot. But when he's starting to be, like, so into this plan, and we get Alex saying things like, it'll be a slaughter, meaning them, and Greg's like, that's the spirit! <laughs> <laughs> I like Greg during these scenes. He's finally come into his own. He's so gung-ho on a suicide mission. (laughs) Well, I mean, he knows the stakes, and he's got nothing to live for except for his 5,000 offspring, apparently, and his, uh, I think it's his wife? (laughs) Yeah. Possibly. Those are are funny when they're showing each other the pictures, and he, like, shows all 5,000 kids (laughs) in a flip book. (laughs) Yeah, he's just one gun star against the Armada. I've always wanted to fight a battle against credible odds. I'm like, I like this guy now. Finally, in the last half hour of the movie, he's fun. (laughs) Of course, we're going to get this all interrupted by that beach scene we talked about, but... Right. (laughs) And meanwhile, things aren't going so well for Zur either. If he's our Darth Vader, he's really pissed off the Nikto aliens around him. (laughs) 
I thought we weren't going to get deep Star Wars references. <laughs> <laughs> but these guys are so. Oh, insane. they are. They 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 after they lost their jobs on Jabba's sail barge, they went and worked for Zer while wearing V outfits. <laughs> <laughs> and a really cool, like, Google Glass device. Yeah. So, yeah, I never got the feeling these guys were down with Zer being their leader at all. Like, they were just waiting to take over. But I never got the feeling that they wanted to follow him. But at the same time, they wanted the same thing. So I didn't quite understand the dynamic between those guys. All right. Here's what I got after, you know, I listened to the commentary. I watched the retrospective making of and read the wiki. Zur works for these guys. And like I said, Zur is the Lex Luthor. These are the Kryptonians. They're going to rule the galaxy, but Zur is going to rule Rylo. And it's because Zur had that nefarious guy on the inside and knows to battle the starfighters and has the strategy. So Zur is getting them just far enough to take out the Star Force defenses. And in exchange, they're rewarding him and they're putting up with him. Because without him, they couldn't have done the inside job. Okay, but he's still commanding them. Like, he made it very clear that, like, nobody fires until he says fire. Yeah, he's kind of gotten too big for his britches. He's overthought his own importance in this whole plot. (laughs) That's the dynamic I get from it. And certainly, I, I mean... I thought there was going to be, like, some kind of insurrection with Lord Krill there talking about, let's do what he says for now. And the other officer there, like, can we just kill him? There's no mutiny going on. Felt like there was. Well, they do betray him, but... Yeah. But he's got the scepter switchblade, so he's able to escape. And I guess I was unclear as to what they were actually doing. I know they were going to go attack... A planet beyond the frontier? Is that what was happening? Because they had to open up a gate in the... I don't know. Like, what What were they waiting for? And what was the big prize that they were eventually trying to make happen? What they're trying to do, they took out the starfighters, but what they want to take out is the frontier, which is a, like, protective barrier of glowing green orbs that surrounds the planets in the Star Force. And so once they take that down, then the Kodan army can come in. The mothership is outside of the Star Force until they take that down. Oh, okay. So that wasn't entirely clear to me. It's still not clear to me now. It's all in that briefing scene. If you could possibly pay attention to Mr. Mustache, (laughs) it's there. It's just, it's not reiterated. It's not made very clear. And when watching it, It's very easy to let a lot of this wash over you and you're like, yeah, they're going through something. I did like the graphics. I mean, when you look at the models they did, they did asteroids, they did caves, and they did a couple different types of starfighters. But I did like the colors and everything on this frontier that the mothership is now able to take down and then be able to go through. Yeah, and I will hand it to the the modelers here. They had a task of, you know, making cool looking starships that didn't necessarily feel like they were ripped off from Star Wars or Star Trek and making them feel like their own. And I, in, in that respect, they did a good job. These didn't feel derivative too much of any other property. No, I agree completely. It, it was just mostly the dialogue and the story that got me, but the starships were, I guess, unique to the movie. I don't want to use the word ne- unique because they all borrow from each other, I think, somewhere along the line. Yeah, but they, they look distinctive. Yeah, distinctive. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. 
I didn't stop and be like, oh my god, that is clearly an X-Wing. All of this was designed by Ron Cobb, and that may not be a household name, but he did help design the Starfighters on Star Wars and Alien. And oh, wow. So he knew what had been done and did something different. Very nice. And this is Krill's big plan, though. Is He knows they're going to come through the Star Force, and so they hide in that asteroid. There's a reason they're not just floating far beyond not needing to render more background. I think that would have been easy. But the fact that they're just waiting in ambush because they need to get to the mothership. Because if they can hit the thermal exhaust port right below the main port, they'll win. <laughs> Take out the droid control ship and everything gets easy. Right. And that's what I thought might happen. If they they just had to attack the mothership, all the other ships would die. But nope, they actually go out and have a dogfight against these other ships. Yeah, what they need to do is take out the communications array on the mothership. And if they do that, the other ships become easier to beat because they're not, you know, flying in tandem. Now you have starfighters just working on their own instead of being given a coordinated attack strategy. But you're right. They're still expecting the whole fleet. They didn't know they took out everybody. They expected there was still some more starfighters coming after them. So that's what they're waiting for. Is it that they think there's no starfighters and they're just going to go through? Because what's happening on Earth is now Beta has screwed up by <laughs> trying to copy humans and gotten in trouble with mags. And so he just comes clean and says, look, I'm a robot Alex and I'll explain more later. And she's like, what? Really? Okay, let's do this. <laughs> no, she does not believe him at all. She's completely defiant. Even when another Zandozan shows up, this time in the form of a police officer. Again, I don't know if he was a police officer that transformed into a Zandozan or if he was a Zandozan who lives on Earth just in case he has a job and he's in this sparsely populated area as a cop. But no, 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 no. The cop pulls up and gets taken over by a... A Zanduzan, because he was in the back seat. Remember, he turns oh, right, around. Right, right, right. Yeah, he'd so. gotten out of his car yeah. and peed. All right, right, right. So there's the Zanduzan that took over a cop, blows a hole in Beta's chest, and Mags is still like, what do you mean you're a robot? There's blue, like, fluid ejaculating from the hole, <laughs> and she's like, but you're Alex! <laughs> and at this point, was probably, if this happened to you, where I would just lose it. I mean... She's yeah. rather calm for this. <laughs> but the stakes have all of a sudden been raised beyond just what's happening in space because the Zanduzan is now getting ready to get back to his little pod and report back that the last Starfighter is not on Earth. This is a Beta. And so Beta is going to take him out before he can send that message. Yeah, Beta sacrifices himself. I like that line. You know, you owe me for this, Alex, and... He says to Mags, who's in this pickup truck, and it was stolen from that jock guy who's like, you better not get a scratch on that truck. And of course, the truck's going to be completely demolished. <laughs> but he tells Maggie, we're going to jump and gets Maggie to jump out at high speed. And he stays in the cab and rams it before the Zandozan can get out the message. The last starfighter is in space. And of course... You know, Zur being the egotist, they get the message. The last starfighter is he's like dead. He's dead. Obviously, that's that has to be the last one. <laughs> so let's go on with our plan and not worry about it, which would be his undoing. So then, that's when 
the space fight really starts to take hold. Yes. With 18 minutes left in the movie, <laughs> we've done 80 minutes of the movie, we're finally getting a decent space battle, and it's fun. I like this a lot. It looks like he's playing a video game. I love it when they go with, like, the third-person video game shot. You're, like, behind Alex's head, and you see the video graphics in front of him as he's blowing stuff up. That is really awesome, but we needed more of this. Yeah, we did, and... We waited so long for this, and... Yeah, it's kind of fun, but I wish the movie had been more like this. And one thing that I think this movie misses just a little bit is is we never get a shot of who's flying these alien ships from inside of their cockpit or anything. So there's really, there's no sense of, are these awesome pilots that are after them or are these just drones or what? We saw the dudes in like the red armor and the opaque helmets. You're right. We did see interior shots because they were talking about once the communication was out that they had to do it visually. Yeah. So I forgot about that. And they do take out the communications array, but all the starfighters are coming in and we get our death blossom. And this is something no practical effect could have done. You get this ship spinning in 720 degree rotation, 360 up and down, 360 side to side shooting everything. I think they should have made a bigger deal over firing it because earlier it was made a big deal. Don't ever touch that. Never touch that. And now they're just like, all right, fire it. (laughs) (laughs) And also had to wait for them to get within the death blossom range. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it should have a much better range for what it is. Yeah, I mean, they're lasers. Like, lasers don't fade out. True. I mean, but yeah, that that was a crazy special effect. That's not what I was expecting to happen. I thought maybe like, you know, a big ball would emanate from the ship and take out whatever was within that range. But nope, it was the ship spinning around crazily and just firing randomly. But video games have that, right? I mean, don't you have... I remember in Asteroids... That was Asteroids, exactly. Yeah, that was my entire tactic in Asteroids, is just to spin and shoot. But there was a special power you could do that would shoot directions everywhere in case you could use it like three times a level... And it would shoot in all directions to hit everything around you. I even programmed a video game when I was trying to be a game designer. And I gave the person three uses of a Death Blossom-like weapon that would clear the screen and allow you to wait for the next wave. It was fun in that regard. And let me tell you something. I would be less forgiving of these graphics if they had only done with them what you could have done with a model and a little more money. But the fact that they do things you could never have done in that day and age, no matter how much you threw at it. I mean, the next time we would see effects like this and movements like this is when they would start doing things like Independence Day and the Star Wars Special Edition, where they had much fuller control over the ships. They wouldn't have to cut so much. So the Death Blossom makes all of the animation kind of worth it. Very true, because what this is, is a movie about an arcade game. And you have to take that into consideration with what we're watching. This is 1984. Video games were nowhere near as good as this. We were playing Atari at this time. And no video game, even in the arcade, was as good as Starfighter. They didn't look that good. They couldn't talk, except for, I guess, if they were going after Star Wars, they did have the recording of Use the Force, Luke. And that was it. Yeah, that was it. I remember when it was a big deal when Punch-Out started saying, Body Blow, Body Blow. And that was years after this. (laughs) Right. And as far as graphics go, it would be until like Star Fox on Nintendo 64 or something like that before we started getting polyagonal type of graphics like this. Yeah, and they were again kind of modeling it after Star Wars. The Star Wars arcade game was all wireframe. It was one of the few real 3D things. But here, 
they're making them look like full ships, not just wireframe models, because they have the rendering power. Yeah, that was a vector-based game, and this is a ray-shaded, you know, so... As a kid, I could see myself being like, ooh, I would love to play this movie. I would love to play this video game. (laughs) In hindsight, you know, 30-some years later, it's like, oh, well, you know, it looks kind of (laughs) hokey. Zur does escape. They try to betray him finally. And honestly, I I couldn't have put up with him as long as they did. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He's like Snidely Whiplash. He's annoying. No one really wants to be friends with him. But if you want to gain power, you've got to hang out and do what he says. The betrayal actually makes him be the only one to escape on this mothership, because my favorite quote in the whole movie, in addition to the communication systems, they took out the navigation systems, as we just get, what do we do? We die. (laughs) (laughs) When do we do it? (laughs) Oh, so yeah, we get treated to quite a bit of Star Trek explosions happening so make sure you're shaking the camera and making it look like everybody's getting jostled around and we go outside and we see probably the worst cgi of this whole movie which sucks because this is their money shot Mm, it's just as bad as when the starfighter base on rilo exploded with the cg behind it they just couldn't do the fire And the ship all of a sudden is way out of scale. Like, I don't know how small that moon was, but like the (laughs) ship took up half of it. (laughs) It's called the mothership. I just thought it was big. (laughs) But Grig is showing off, you know, that ship is spinning and celebrating. And Alex is now the hero of Rilo for all the death and destruction on that base. There's a lot of people who show up when they want a party, including Centauri. It was so... I guess it was the moment of the movie with the most heart was his death. I mean, we kind of talked about how weird some of the lines were, but he died. It was the only character we gave a damn about other than Beta to die this whole movie. And Beta's an android, so who's to say he isn't coming back? But here he is. He comes back. Just, oh, stop thinking human. (laughs) Right? There's just really no excuse. I was just rebooting. (laughs) I was taking a nap. I'm not really dead. Yes. He went into the Centauri sleep. And I don't know why he knew Alex was coming back and he was there to greet him. Why did he have to wait for Alex to get there to put his human mask on? Well, maybe he only wears that for Alex's sake. I mean, you got to think that thing's itchy. <laughs> yeah. Sweat a lot under it. And the eyes don't line up. <laughs> yeah. The, and yeah, the peripheral vision probably sucks. I mean, it's like wearing, it's for him like what a wearing a Spencer's gift mask is for us. Last year, when we were doing a photo f- to celebrate John Carpenter writing the intro to our book, I put on a They Live mask that had full eyeballs. I could see out tiny little slits because it looked like I had They Live eyes. I was pretty much walking blind. He was. I was wearing the Michael Myers mask, and thankfully it had larger eyes, but it smelled horrid inside. So let's assume that's what Centauri's mask is. He can't see and it smells horrid. Would you put it on if you didn't have to? <laughs> no, I would not. And those eyeballs did look a little bit invasive. (laughs) There's a city on that planet, apparently. Did you see that? There was a whole cityscape in the background. A crowd of millions have gathered. It looks Hunger Games to me. (laughs) I I think it was because of the mustache that Enduran did. He's kind of reminding me of Donald Sutherland in the Hunger Games movies and everything. (laughs) And then he allows him to speak and all that and... Is kind of being a little dismissive of Alex's wishes and 
So that's what I was getting off of this scene. Oh, you just saying that just like made me realize why the Rylos bother me. They all look like grown up munchkins. <laughs> oh, they do with the weird shaped heads and the little the hair on the side. Yes. Yep, you're right. This is where all the munchkins went. They went to Rylo. Yeah. I, I definitely think it's not an accident that there's a lot of Wizard of Oz going on. What, what about the Star Wars? That's that- not an accident either. Okay. In fact, that's probably the elevator pitch. It's Star Wars <laughs> and the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Starring the music man. But that elevator pitch took longer than a normal elevator pitch because after we get this scene back on Rylo where they're trying to convince him to come back and rebuild the fleet, we head back to Earth where they land at the trailer park and for whatever reason, Alex takes a 25-minute trip down the slowest moving elevator I have ever seen as everybody's like what's going on like there's this guy coming down wait for it (laughs) i'm gonna go to the bathroom real quick let me know what happens world's worst (laughs) surprise party entrance (laughs) oh i don't know why that bothered me so much i'm like why did they feel like they needed to have that thing start all the way at the top of the ship and show us the entire descent like (laughs) on the other hand because they can i would think it's kind of a heroic moment you know it's like why did they need to see Luke and Han walk up the entire red carpet? Because it was awesome, and they had the great music, and it was a pivotal moment in the movie. Well, there's good music going on here. I actually am really enjoying the score by... Not John Williams? <laughs> not yes. John Williams. That's his official name, is not John Williams. <laughs> Craig Safan, I mean, he, he did the score to Cheers. And... Nightmare on Elm Street 4. I have Nightmare on Elm Street 4 soundtrack, so I, I knew his name, and I, I like the score going on here. So I'm with it when all the people who dismissed him as a electronic repairman in the trailer park are now realizing he's landed on a starship, and they're completely accepting of it, too. Oh, they're fine with it. There's no explanation needed. Like, oh, of course this is where Alex has been. Duh. In real life, it would have been like the movie Big, where the mother reports him missing, he's on milk cartons. Well, he only had disappeared for a couple of hours. Beta crashed that truck, and nobody knows what to do about Alex. Meanwhile, Maggie is just stating nonsense about an android, so the fact that he shows up in a starfighter... With a lizard best friend, a la Enemy Mine. (laughs) (laughs) Enemy Mine ripped this off. Pretty sure, like, post-production is being done in Enemy Mine at this time already. Enemy Mine came out, like, 14 months later. Oh, okay. They were just starting to film, but they may have had an extra mask laying around. (laughs) I love that Rockin' Out Granny, who had the Walkman, now has the double-barreled shotgun ready to shoot the Starfighter. (laughs) She is hip to be square, let me tell you. And... You know, Alex is perfectly fine. Bye, Mom. Bye, brother. Hey, can I take my girl? Apparently, he just isn't into Rylan women. (laughs) I I do not blame him. And out of Greg's 5,000 kids, not one is good enough for Alex. Yeah, you think that they would be doing the hookup there, but oh well. (laughs) Now, this is where the stakes kind of start to bother me a little bit. You know, he's making it sound like, I spoke about this earlier, if I leave now, I don't know when I'll come back. It's so far away. <laughs> they've been traveling back and forth this whole time like it's nothing. You know, like, why did she have to make that decision right now? That's like the rest of your life, apparently. Maybe it's like when it's like living in L.A., you know, and like, you know, you think like the valley's like so far away and it could never live there when really it's like a 90 minute, two hour drive. <laughs> right. But if like if your boyfriend was moving to L.A., would you be like, oh, well, I better go right now? Or would you wait for him to get there and get settled in and be like, all right, let's see how it's going. <laughs> yeah, I think I 
want to pack, like check it out to make sure he's worth moving to this new planet. But I understand it's a movie. They need to make it, you know, seem more permanent and romantic. So it's kind of like the end of the Back to the Future movie, though, when she hops into DeLorean and just takes off blindly. <laughs> so in the sequel they had planned, she was going to be replaced by <laughs> Elizabeth Shue. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk about that sequel in a moment. But Justin, Marjorie, do you recommend The Last Starfighter? Justin. Oh, that's such a hard question. That is a hard question. I would say if you're interested in seeing a movie that is actually a pretty good attempt at aping the style of other directors, other movies, other video games, other things that were going on at the time in the 80s, this is a movie you might want to check out because, to be honest with you, there's moments where this movie feels like Spielberg was involved. There's moments where it feels like John Williams was scoring this thing. And then there's other moments where it's like, oh boy, what am I looking at here? But I think what it really comes down to for me is unless you were around when this movie came out and are looking for a little nostalgia, whether you've seen this movie or not, I don't know that I can recommend this to, you know, a millennial or even one of my kids. I think they would just look at this and be like, hokey. So I guess it comes down to who you are and what you're looking for. If you're if you're the type of person who likes sci-fi, this isn't necessarily a great sci-fi movie. But it is a good 80s throwback nostalgic movie. So I'll recommend it for that type of person. So Green Arrow? Green Arrow. All right, Marjorie. Hmm. Well, I struggle with this one because I don't feel like I could recommend it to somebody who has never seen this movie because you're going to be sorely disappointed coming from the person who has never seen this movie. So you were sorely disappointed. I think I know where this is going. I, I was expecting a whole hell of a lot more. I also didn't expect that I was just going to recite Star Wars quotes to you all night with different scenes in this movie where they blatantly ripped off Star Wars. How is that different from any other night in our household? That's true. <laughs> However, uh, I was getting kind of like just irritated by it at this at some point. I'm just like, you know what? They they just tried to remake Star Wars but make a video game instead of this kid, you know, finding these droids and then meeting a hermit. All we needed was some sand people and maybe a crate dragon roar. Well, well we don't need the crate dragon roar. Let's back up. And if we did, we needed the first Great Dragon yes, Roar. exactly. But we had a Zandozan. Isn't that kind of like a Jawa? Zandozan, Obi-Wan. It's like all the same, right? I can't recommend this movie. I really can't. It just was kind of boring. And it took a very long time to get to the part that was mildly meeting my low expectations for the battle scene. I was hoping for more. I can recognize its place in the CGI history of movies. But I don't think you need to see this movie. I recommend this movie, and I would have put it in the book as a recommend movie. I like this movie a lot, and I think it works on many levels. I think it is the best of the Star Wars ripoffs to come in the 40 years since Lucas hit screens. I mean, what am I comparing it to? I'm comparing it to Wing Commander, Ice Pirates. I love Ice Pirates. <laughs> I'm comparing it to Battle Beyond the Stars, you know, so many of those kinds of movies. And there's not a whole lot of competition. Battlestar Galactica, the original one especially. I mean, it's better than all of those. The effects, it's going to be polarizing. I really like the quaintness of them. I really like the look of them. But no, it doesn't mesh with the photorealism. And a couple of times it does get a little bit off. 
The worst thing about this movie, though, and what makes it not a strong recommend, but in fact a fairly weaker recommend, is the pacing. This thing needed to be 80 minutes with what they had. They had 20 minutes of CGI footage, which gives us an hour of human drama. But it's an hour 40, and you feel it. You feel it in the beginning. Once the attack happens on Rilo and all the starfighters are taken out, the movie kicks into high gear. But you're going to have to give it 45 minutes before you get there. And it's a hard give. It, it, is, it honestly is. And I've never felt it before. But we always say when you watch a movie with the now playing goggles, you see it different. And when I've seen this movie so many times over the past few years, I never felt that pace. But when I watched it with just intense eyes, it drags. But it's still a lot of fun. And I really do like Lance Guest as Alex. I think he has a charisma to him. And I think that he's a lot of fun. And he's a hell of a lot better here than in the other movie we reviewed him in, which is Jaws the Revenge, where he is Michael Brody. But he was good in that. Eh, he's better here, I'll say that for sure, and nothing's good in that. I happen to really like that movie because it's ridiculous. It's a guilty <laughs> pleasure. And I swear there had to be a casting director from Halloween because he was also Jimmy in Halloween too. Oh, wow. <laughs> so a lot of Halloween going on here. <laughs> or the director just had hung around <laughs> because he was the shape. <laughs> but no, it's definitely a recommend. If you enjoy Star Wars and you like... I want more Star Wars, but there's only seven movies. Go watch this one. It's what I did, and I was not disappointed. And this movie was a success. You know, we call it underrated, but this movie came out in 1984, and it made more than 16 Candles, Against All Odds, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Muppets Take Manhattan. I mean, movies that people still know and still watch this outgrossed. It was considered a success, making almost $30 million on a $15 million budget. Oh, that's so quaint. It really <laughs> is. And the fifth top grossing movie of the year was Karate Kid with 90. And then you get like Gremlins and Ghostbusters and Beverly Hills Cop that, you know, were in the nine figure range. But it did well. And it turns out this was even adapted as an off-Broadway musical. So they tried to make a musical without the music, and then somebody added the music and took it off-Broadway. What? <laughs> it was in 2004. Okay, so maybe with a little bit of nostalgia and irony baked into it. Yeah, it went for a couple of years. Apparently, it was the full production was in 2007. Hmm. Yeah, I found out about this... As an unwelcome surprise, because I went to Amazon and saw The Last Starfighter and thought I was buying the really kick-ass Craig Safan score, and then, Starlight, Star Bright, <laughs> the trailer park tonight. That sounds absolutely dreadful. You'd think it couldn't get worse than the ode to the trailer park at the beginning, but yet each song is worse than the one before it. It is truly <laughs> hell to listen to. Did you buy it then? I did. I thought it was the score. I didn't look closely. There was only one last Starfighter album. <laughs> I hope you didn't pay a lot of money for it. Oh, no. It was real cheap and okay. still overpaid. But I'm like, okay, that's a bad song. Then comes the <laughs> chant and cheering song while Alex beats the high score. And as if that's not bad enough, later on, Zur sings an ode to his father about how he feels betrayed. And I actually couldn't finish it when Maggie was having a song with two other trailer park women about love. 
and how one regrets being so mean to her husband while she was on her period, I hit stop. Whoa. <laughs> Wait, was this actually on Broadway or off, 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 off Broadway? Like that one that we saw that was so off Broadway, it was down in the village? It was off Broadway on 114th Street, so that's pretty far off Broadway. Yeah. Or at least off of what you consider Broadway. They don't say the neon lights are bright at 405 West 114th Street. (laughs) (laughs) So I can see the impulse to make a musical of this, but no. I suggest anyone who's even morbidly curious, just go to Amazon, listen to the 30-second previews. I'm not a Broadway guy to begin with, but I like a few. Cats, Phantom, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, but this... It would definitely be something to see. I don't know if I, you know, would pay for tickets, but, you know, if somebody threw them at me, I would have gladly sat down for a couple hours to see what they could musical up out of this. The explosions would look more real. (laughs) And there had long been talk, even recently, of a sequel. Spielberg and, strangely, Seth Rogen... Both were interested in directing it. <laughs> Spielberg said, if somebody's going to rip me off, I might as well have a shot at it. Yeah, he'd probably end up producing it versus directing it himself. He does that with a lot of films. But they were trying to do it in 2008, and it ended up in development hell. There's a rights issue. They're not quite sure who owns it. And the writer of this film, Jonathan Batool, didn't want any remakes, any sequels. He was strongly against it. Until they offered to pay him, and now he is writing a reboot of this for television. So this could be a TV series. Oh, brother. Not for that? I am. I think that you could really do something with this in today's TV era where you have, you know, like the recent Battlestar Galactica and all of those Doctor Who and other sci-fi shows. One, they'd have to make it interesting because they've proven that the movie was not interesting. And two, it seems like a Netflix series that's going to do like one season and then people are going to get really angry about it being canceled and do a petition and then make sure it's that last Starfighters forever and then maybe call themselves like khaki coats or something. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I just don't know how much legs it has beyond the novelty of recruiting people from a planet that doesn't know extraterrestrial life exists via video games. Which, I mean, that still exists. I mean, it exists more now than it did back then. So I think that concept is cool. Admittedly, it has become reality. These days, our actual combat pilots are trained in video game simulators. Right. And vice versa. We have people who've never flown a plane or anything that are piloting these drones and stuff, too. So, mm-hmm. and, and you've got movies like Snakes on a Plane, where Keenan, who's never flown a plane but played Flight Simulator a lot, can <laughs> land it. <laughs> and that was Snakes on a Plane, if you haven't seen that movie, people. <laughs> but yeah, that concept, I think, has some legs. I don't know if it has TV series legs, because, I mean, obviously, the the alien species here in the movie weren't fleshed out enough for us to think, ooh, I want to spend more time in that world. It's the concept of finding people for their talents here on Earth, which I think maybe could work as a movie, but a whole series? Ugh. Here's the key for me as I think this through from hearing you talk, and I think you're right. My first thought was, well, you could have a whole bunch of people recruited from Earth, right? And you could, I guess, call it the last Starfighters, like the actual fleet was wiped out, and so a bunch of Earthlings are brought together with a few aliens to try to defend the galaxy. But 
the thing about the last starfighter that you'd have to do you gotta keep it fun you gotta have your beta scenes you gotta have some humor you've gotta have your music man introducing it you know if they went grim and gritty with The Last Starfighter, that is a big mistake. But if you decided to make a fun sci-fi romp, and you really just kind of kept the names, and you fleshed out the evil of the Kodan, and the good of the Starfleet, I think you could make it work like anything. It comes down to good writing. Okay, see, so you just want them to make a better movie via a television series. No, I'm just saying if you're going to make it a weekly show... And you could have overarching plots and through lines and make it a war film, but make it a fun one, like 70s Battlestar Galactica, not like 2000s Battlestar Galactica. I could see that. It'll all come down to if they do it, who's making it, and where it's going to be shown. If it's a ABC type of thing, I, I just don't know if I'm interested. Netflix, maybe. ABC would never give it the budget it needed, but... That is it. That is the end of the show for today. A reminder, we will be back Friday with our review of Star Trek Beyond. And in the meantime, if you want even more movie reviews to tide you over, we are in the final, final days of our spring 2016 donation drive. July 31st is the last day that these bonus shows, the Men in Black series, the Independence Day series, the Ghostbusters series... Plus our sci-fi summer of 86 series with Critters, Invaders from Mars, Space Camp, Labyrinth, Big Trouble in Little China, and Night of the Creeps. All of those are just about to go in the vault. So if you want a chance to hear those reviews and you want to support our show so we can keep putting out bonus shows like this one, head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner at the top of the page, and you can get up to 14 bonus podcasts and all your donations go to help out this show. Thank you to everyone who's donated. We hope you've enjoyed this bonus episode. And Marjorie, Justin, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I wish there was some memorable line from this movie that I could quote, but... They're pretty forgettable. I'll just go with, until the next dimension, old friend. We did it. Yes, we actually did, didn't we? Half of the Star League and all citizens of Rylos... I congratulate you on your dazzling victory. Thank you for listening to this bonus Now Playing movie review. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Good show, Starfighter. Way to go. I always knew you'd leave someday, but I, I never expected this. Now Playing is a podcast with no sponsors or ads. We rely on listener support to keep reviewing movies week after week. It's about your loan. Still go to City College with your friends. And for just a few more days until July 31st, 2016, if you donate to Now Playing, you can get over a dozen bonus movie reviews. Hear reviews of all films in the Men in Black, Independence Day, and Ghostbusters series. Plus reviews of six sci-fi classics from 1986. Critters, Invaders from Mars, Labyrinth, Space Camp, Big Trouble in Little China, and Night of the Creeps. Find details on how to donate by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. You, and you alone, stand between us and the black terror of the Kodan. Now Playing's The Last Starfighter Review is edited by Arnie. Oh my, that's going to take all day. I never even get a chance to have a good time around here.
Now playing credit narration by Brock. Speak English? No, you hear English thanks to your translator device. Now playing is not affiliated with Universal Pictures, Lorimar Productions, or any of the makers or copyright holders of The Last Starfighter. The movie reviewed in this podcast is the intellectual property of those companies, and no infringement is intended. This is all highly irregular. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You may have thought it was a game, but it was also a test. Aha! Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. I was trying to see every Star Wars ripoff I could, and this was a big one. You were a weird little kid, weren't you? I was 20 years old. You were a weird kid. Oh, God, and that's just before I met you. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Ooh, the alternate timeline Arnie could have been a scary, scary adult. He could have been. <laughs> this movie really just kind of slipped through my, my memory hole. Do a lot of things slip in that hole? <laughs> it's a pit you do not want to visit. <laughs> Where Ash is what, what, decommissioned, killed, destroyed, and like that goo came out that was like milky white, and it's like that had glommed together and made something disgusting in that bed, or perhaps it's just what's left over after his wet dreams. I don't know. Yeah, do a lot of milky white substances come together and make something in that bed? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Mags looks like she was, you know, holding out. She seemed kind of prissy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the aliens... Ooh, Gazunite. <laughs> what's funny is I got to watch it happen. <laughs> I didn't know if he's leaving a pregnant pause or if he was done talking. No. Uh, no it, just it, the mother of all sneezes. Yeah, no, <laughs> certainly. But I was done talking. The, the... Yeah, it was pretty tame by today's standards for sure. Yeah, but it was perfect for 10-year-olds before you graduated to Wii and Fox. And oh, is that just me? No. Yeah, Wii was like, whoa. <laughs> That doesn't go there. <laughs> we saw the dudes in like the red armor and the opaque helmets who I took as the Hodan, not Hodan. Uh, <laughs> it's Kodan. It's close to Hodan. <laughs> the Hodan oh, wait, wait. Peninsula in Vietnam. <laughs> um. I'm not a Broadway guy to begin with, but I like a few. Cats, Phantom, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. You didn't really like it. You just got really happy when there was a malfunction when we saw the show. Yeah, a little schattenfraud on that one, but... Until the next dimension, old friend. Which doesn't sound familiar, even though I just watched this movie. It's what they say to uh, What's-His-Nuts when he dies. Centauri. <laughs> yeah, and you had to think What's-His-Nuts, so way to go. Right? What's his nuts? <laughs> oh, I loved it when old nut, what's his nuts came back. 